Back to First John. I promised that I would move on from that last text because we spent like, I don't know, 15, 20 weeks on like four verses. And some of you were getting a little tired of it. Uh, so we're doing that. We're moving on. We're, uh, we're moving forward. But I'd like to start, um, well, last week, I mean, Doug, Doug mentioned it in his prayer. Um, last week, I, I kind of said, hey, and I got an email uh, about one of the things I said last week. I said, when was the last time um, that we saw someone come to faith in our congregation? When was the last time that we saw somebody for the first time believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Um, to receive eternal life, life that is robust and real, that starts now, that continues throughout eternity. When was the last time that happened? Well, one of the, the things that I thought about um, after that is, is that I don't want this to come off like, like we're doing a terrible job. Because the thing is, I know you, and I know that you love people. I've been with you for a long time, and I know that you have deep love for the community of faith, that you have deep love uh, for the lost. I know it. I've heard it. And yet, even in spite of that love, in spite of that commitment, that desire, I'm wondering, why isn't it effective? Why isn't our love having an impact on the people who are around us? What is it? Is it something, is it something that we're doing wrong? Is it something that we're, we're lost on? We, we, we don't, that's, that's the question that animates today. Why is it that our love doesn't seem to be impacting those around us? And I, I, I want you to, to trust me, it's, it's, it's actually, um, uh, the idea is buried in this text. And if we start pulling back some of the layers and getting underneath it and into it, I think we're going to see what it is about love that needs to change, what it is about love that needs to stay the same. And maybe it'll have an answer for us as we think, as we go forward, as this church moves out and moves to engage the culture around us. So let's read um, 1 John 1. First John 2, 7 and 8 together. This is um, my translation, um, so it's a little different maybe for those of you who are um, familiar with the King James, but uh, it says, Dear friends, I am not writing a new command to you, but an old command, one that you've had from the very beginning. The old command is the message that you heard, but in a way I am writing to you a new command, something made real in him and you, because the darkness is fading away and the true light is already shining. Well, I mean, John's not afraid to contradict himself, so that's good. I am not writing you a new can't, but I am. I am. In fact, uh, if you're familiar with the New King James, that verse 8 says something like, Again, I am writing you a new command. And you're like, what? Again? No. That doesn't make sense. Uh, and I think it goes on to say something like, um, Which is true in him and in you. In a way, I'm writing to you a new command. But I- I'm also talking about an old command. A command hasn't changed at all, and yet it's new. And there's a strange tension that's going on in John's language. Well, I don't want you to keep you in suspense. I mean, the first question is, what is the command? We, we need to know what this command is. What's this, this new command, this, this old command? What uh, is the command? Well, um, it's all over First John. So right here, um, we have uh, later on in First John 3.11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Did you hear that? From the beginning. That we should love one another. That seems simple. 
This actually comes uh, from Jesus. So this is an old command that we've had from the beginning, uh, that we should love one another. From the beginning, maybe, uh, maybe we should take this to mean, um, like when we first became Christians. Maybe not. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but from the beginning, we should love one another. There's your old commands. And this is what Jesus says, um, in the Gospel of John. He says, a new command, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you should also love one another. An old command, love one another. A new command, love one another. This old and new command is that you should love each other. And that's the first thing in your note sheets. The old and new command is to love each other. This is weird. John, what are you doing? I mean, it's new, it's old, it sounds exactly the same. What's going on here? Well, I want to show you just how old this command is to begin with. Let's, let's, get, let's find out how old it is. Uh, this is uh, from Matthew. This is uh, one of the things that Jesus says. He says, uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So at least, at the very least, this command is about 40 years old by the time that John's writing. Um, First John's probably written near the end of the first century, uh, probably like 30 to 40 years since uh, Jesus has, has, has gone uh, to be with the Father, ascended to the Father in heaven. Um, and, and one of the interesting things about uh, John's text is that, is that he weaves in a lot of the stuff that you get in the Gospel of John, so you hear it over and over and over. Um, we'll talk a little more about that in a second. But it's at least this old. But the thing is, notice the quotes. Jesus did not make this up. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus got this from Leviticus, from the Torah, the old law. Uh, in Leviticus 19.18, we read, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So the command's not just 40 years old, it's, it's now even older. It's uh, the, the, the Torah written probably 1,000 to 2,000 years before Jesus. Somewhere in there, we're not exactly sure. Um, but it, it's, it's that ancient. This command is as old as the Torah itself, as old as the law. This, this has truly been with us for a long, long time. How old is it? And what does it mean that's old and new. What's new about this? If it's been around since the beginning, since, since Torah, since Jesus, what is new now? Well, I think there's a little hint in the text. Uh, John's, John used that, that phrase, from the beginning. From the beginning. In Greek, that's uh, aparche. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting term that John uses. He he uses it a number of times. Uh, For those of you who don't know, First John was actually probably a sermon. Uh, The way that the ancient world worked um, is so John probably wasn't able to move around to all the churches in Ephesus all the time. So what he would do is he would write out sermons and then he would send it with a messenger. This is the messenger would travel to another congregation and would literally stand in front of the congregation and read this. And this was kind of like the beginning of sermons. And so all of First John in one sitting, he would read it. Uh, and, and then the congregation would hear it. And so the way that John writes actually lends itself to this. He uses phrases over and over to kind of catch your ear, um, to, to create some associations in your ear. So you hear the same thing over and over, and you start to, starts to have layers of meaning. Uh, at the very basic level, from the beginning, probably means at the start, right? This is, this is the, the, the command you heard when you first started following Jesus. Love each other. Do it. 
But maybe it means something more. Maybe it has a deeper, maybe a, a deeper layer to it, something that's more rich that, that, that can help us uh, get a, a, a deeper and wider un- understanding or perspective. So let me just show you a couple of ways that, that John uses that phrase from the beginning in his, in his sermon. The first is this. We announce to you what existed from the beginning. What we have heard, seen with our eyes, seen and our hands have handled about the word of life. The beginning. What existed from the beginning. Well, that's not, you know, 40 years ago. What existed from the very beginning, from eternity, John is announcing. The Godhead and Jesus, the second person who comes. And, and this being, this, this God who was with us from the very beginning is now with us. And we touched and saw and handled him. This is, this is not 40 years ago. This is not even 2,000 years ago. This is the very beginning of all things. Uh, another example of when he uses this uh, phrase. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. From the beginning. Him, who is from the beginning. When did Jesus start? Jesus has no start. He is from the very beginning of all things. A a, a last example is this. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Without getting into too much um, demonology, uh, the the rebellion uh, by by Lucifer and and the angels takes place even before um, the, the, the universe that we live in is created. Which is very strange. It not only is from the beginning, you know, when you first believed, maybe a couple of years ago or 40 years ago or whenever, but it, it has this layering in John where you hear from the beginning, aparche, 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 and it always means from the very beginning, the creation itself. There is something. There is something about this love that is as old as the universe. It's the next thing in your note sheets. There's something about uh, this love command that's as old as the universe. How can the love command be from the very beginning of the universe? That's strange. Let's just look one more time at, the, at, our, at our text and just get one more little piece of it, and, then, and maybe it'll start to, to come out. The old command is the message that you heard, but in a way, I'm writing to you a new command, something made real in him and in you. I told you, I've, um, I've really contemporized this because um, the New King James translation is really wooden here, and it, I think it, it really it, it loses um, the kind of the force of what, of what John's after because it's strange. Uh, the reason that it's strange is that um, that word something right there can't refer to the command that's right before it. When you're reading it um, in Greek, it's very strange because there's a relative pronoun that does not um, line up with entele or command. Entele is a, is, a, is a feminine word, and the ha that follows it is a neuter word. So the something does not refer to the command. So he, he's like, in a way, I'm writing to you a new command. It's, it's, it's this thing out there, this experience or this, this life that's made real in him and you. Uh, made real, I'm translating uh, aletheia, truth. Truth typically means what's, uh, what's actually the case. You know, truth, like when we are looking for the truth in a, in a, in a crime scene or whatever. But in this case, in this case, it's, it's an experience that, that's, that's made real or manifested or authenticated almost. And that, that word aletheia can carry that. Uh, term and does several times in the scriptures where it's, it's like it's, it's authenticating or making real or manifesting or, or, or showing to be that this is it. It's right here. It's, it's real. In a way, I'm writing to you a new command and, and there's an experience or an authentication that's been made real in Christ and in you, the church. How 
Can this command be from the beginning of the universe and yet is now new and somehow made real in Jesus himself and the church? Did you see the new, um, the new Magnificent Seven? I think it's, I think it's a little bit violent. Um, yeah, so maybe it's not for everyone. Um, it's got Denzel Washington, though, and as I've talked to uh, the ladies in the office, Denzel Washington is by far, he's probably a top five all-time actor. Um, he not only is absolutely engaging when he's on the screen, I, I just can't take my eyes off of him, but also he's got a tremendous range, right? I agree, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is very engaging, but he's the same character in every movie. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's Jack Reacher or Mission Impossible or Cocktail, whatever he's doing, he's the same guy. Super intense, trying to save the world. Denzel? Denzel is sublime. So I had to watch this movie. I went with Glenn, some of the guys from church. It was okay. Um, I love it because it's Denzel. But it wasn't, you know, my all-time fave uh, of, of Denzel's work. And that's because this movie is a remake of, let's be honest, a much better film <laughs> called The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, so the so first, so in the six, I think it was like '67 or maybe the early '70s. I don't know if you can read those names, but I mean, talk about an all-star cast. I mean, Steve McQueen, James Coburn. I don't know who Horst Buchholz is, but Yul Brenner. I mean, King and I. I mean, he's a sublime. Charles Bronson shows up. I mean, this is Robert Vaughn. Is I mean, this is this is like an a who's who of all the great movies that were made before Star Wars. I mean, they're all here in this film right here. Now, the thing that bothered me when I was watching the new Magnificent Seven is it was like a shot-for-shot remake of the old one. If you don't know the story of the Magnificent Seven, there's like this little village, and uh, some bandits are raiding it. And so the the villagers are like, we need to get get some protection. And so they they hire out some, some, uh, looks like outlaws, mercenaries, we're not quite sure, uh, who look like they have kind of a shady past. And these seven guys, they kind of, this, uh, I think Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen kind of get this crew together, and they bring in some just, you know, hard-fighting, like, just tough-as-nails dudes, and they come in, and they train the people to shoot, and it doesn't go very, very, very well. The people are little farmers. They don't know what they're doing. But these seven guys stand up against this huge gang, and they win at great cost. Not all of them make it. And there's this moment um, at the end of the film when you're, 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 you're sort of struck by the honor uh, um, that, that these guys who, who are rootless, who we don't know where they're from, where, that they have, that they were willing to go out on a limb for these people in this way. And there's this moment where you're like, wow, these guys are heroes. Well, the Magnificent Seven uh, was actually a reboot, not a remake, a reboot of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Hachi Samurai. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai um, came out, I think, in the 50s. Um, it was 207 minutes long. So just, like, a little bit shorter than the sermon's going to be. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. We're going to get you out of here in 75 minutes or less. My guarantee. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Seven Samurai. Um, but uh, notice I say reboot, not remake. Okay, Reboot, not remake. And, and that's because uh, not only was the Magnificent Seven much shorter than the 207-minute uh, uh, epic tale that is the Seven Samurai, but also radically different in context and place, right? Uh, Seven Samurai takes place in uh, 16th century Japan. Um, and uh, again, the, the basic plot's similar. There's a village that's under attack from raiders, and they hire out seven samurai to come and defend them. 
But these just these aren't just any samurai. They're the ronin. They're masterless samurai. In Japan, um, in that era, every samurai had to be pledge his allegiance to a lord, a daimyo. Um, and and the ultimate shame was if a samurai, if a samurai's daimyo or lord died before he did. Because if, if your lord died before the, you did, then you had failed in your ultimate task, which is to protect him and his interests. And yet, during this warring period in Japan, many lords were being slaughtered, and, and many times their samurai outlived them. If you know Japanese culture, you know what you're supposed to do when your lord outlives you. It involves a short knife and your belly. You're supposed to commit seppuku, ritual suicide. If you're lucky, you have a friend who's standing over you so that as your insides spill out, he chops off your head. And if he doesn't, then you are sentenced to hours of excruciating death. And this is to expiate your sin, your shame, that you did not defend your Lord. So the, the seven samurai, the seven ronin of that movie are come to us as people who are radically shamed. People who are simply unacceptable in the world, people who are out of place and out of step. As viewers uh, in Japanese culture, when you see the seven samurai, the seven ronin, you instantly hate them. You instantly disrespect them. You're instantly engaged to, to despise them because they have no honor. And their honor can never be regained. It's so interesting. Uh, at the end of Seven Samurai, if you stick it out all 207 minutes, I think they did like a 180-minute version for Americans, which <laughs> chopped off a few things. You can get the whole thing on a Criterion Collection if you're interested. Uh, at the end of it, after they've successfully defended the village, one of the surviving ronin, he says, but we, the ronin, have no victory here. We can never have victory. The victory is the victory of these villagers. Meaning that even though they put themselves out in this heroic, incredible act, their honor can never be recovered because they have failed in their primary task. And yet, in the midst of this story, as we're watching from the perspective of the Japanese, we start to feel that maybe they have regained their honor. Maybe there has been atonement of some kind for them in their activities. We as viewers sympathize with them and recognize that because they don't expect any honor from this, maybe they've actually gained a little bit. Nothing like that happens in the Magnificent Seven because Americans don't get that. Americans were like, uh, what? <laughs> Dude, you, you whipped out your guns and you protected a village? You're awesome. You're amazing. You're a hero. And, and so, so there's, a, there's a major difference between Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. There's a, and, yet, and yet, in the middle of that, the spirit, the spirit of these two films, it remains the same. So there's a sense in which while we're watching Seven Samurai, we're not seeing um, or, you know, these guys being redeemed, but we are learning something about honor, and we are seeing honor in these men. Likewise, when we watch Magnificent Seven, it's in a completely different context. You know, it's a Western, um, and it's, I think it takes place in Mexico. It's very much, much different. We're still learning something about honor. We're still recapturing the spirit of honor. The, the Magnificent Seven is not a remake of the Seven Samurai. It is a reboot. It is different. And this is the next thing in your note sheets. A remake 
A remake tells the same story. A reboot adapts the spirit of the story to a new time and context. A remake tells the same story. A reboot adapts the spirit of the story to a new time and context. We began this sermon with a question. What, why is our love not impacting people? And then we, 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 looked, at, uh, we looked at this command. It, it, it's from the beginning. It's, it's ancient. It's, it's the beginning of the universe. It's also in the, in the Torah. It's also in Jesus' teaching. It, it, it's throughout. And yet, maybe what's going on, maybe what's going on is that God himself reboots his love. Maybe God himself changes his love for different times and contexts so that it, it, it has the same spirit of God's love, his, his relentless commitment, his faithfulness, his, his self-givingness, his sacrifice. Maybe that's present all the way through. And I think, I think it is. I think that when we, we say that there's something about loving one another that's as old as the universe, that's because the creation itself was God's self-giving love, the spilling out of his joy. to cre- He didn't have to create us. God was totally fine. He wasn't lonely. I, I mean, you might be lonely in eternity, but God wasn't. God is pure joy and pure happiness all the time. He didn't have to make this place. He didn't have to make this world, but he did out of love. He gave of himself. He knew it was going to go badly. It hurt him to do it. And yet he did it anyway for you, for us. When he chose Israel, that election, that too was self-giving love. He, he said, this people, this recalcitrant, stubborn, stiff-necked people, I'm going to make them mine, and they're going to make me mad. But I'm going to do it anyway because I love them. And so he gives of himself in election. He gives of himself in the giving of the law. He is loving the other in new and fantastic and bizarre ways all throughout the history of the world. He is rebooting his love. The same spirit, the same self-givingness, the same other's directedness, the same faithfulness, and yet utterly new stories, utterly new contexts, utterly new times. Maybe... The problem, when we're asking ourselves, why is our love not impacting people? Maybe the problem is that our love is a remake and not a reboot. Maybe our love is just, we're, we're, it's not creative. It's just kind of, this is what we grew up with. This is what we've experienced. This is what we've always done. And so we're just going to keep doing it because it worked for us back in the day. And, and if we just do the same thing over and over, presumably it'll keep working. But that's not how God did it. His command at the very beginning was way different than his command in the incarnation. The creation of the world and the incarnation is the same love, but radically different expressions. Rebooted love, as it were. Maybe our love needs a reboot. This is the last thing on your note sheets. I, I submit to you that I don't think um, love works the same way now that it did in the 1980s. Um, the 80s was a great decade. I really enjoyed it. Uh, for those of you who missed it because you're too young, yeah, it was kind of like the apex of culture. You're just sort of living in the aftermath, which is unfortunate for you. Um, but, I mean, wow, I, I could just go on and on about how great the 80s were. And yet, and yet, love that impacts now is different 
than love impact in the 80s, the 60s, the 50s, the early 1900s, the, 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 the. And here's how it works. We live in a culture that's rapidly accelerating in terms of isolation and divisiveness. Did you, okay, notice this. When we think about love, we t- tend to right here, right here in this place, we tend to think about love as like, as like you're, you're, you're searching for your soulmates, kind of, the people that you really click with, and then once you've found them, you stay together. You clump together and you're like, yeah, it's us against the world, which is basically the plot of like Seinfeld or Friends. If you think about those, those TV shows, that's what they did. They're like, it's... Just randomly, like, these people live across the hall from each other in New York, and suddenly they're, like, besties, and they, like, just do life together. And, they, and heaven forbid someone else join the crew. In fact, I think there's episodes where people try to join them, and they're like, no, get out of here. We've got a good thing. We like it the way it is. We, uh, we absolutely do not want to mess with it. That, our, our culture tells us that that's what love is. And we buy into that. We buy into it. Because it seems right, you know, you get together with the people that you love, and, and you stay with them, and, and in fact, in, in some ways, that's kind of how the early church looked. It was them against the world, and so they banded together, and they were, they were like, held each other together, and, and, and they did everything in common, and, and that's sort of how it looked. That's how, sort of how it was. I have a couple ideas, and these are, these are just provisional. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm working this out just as you are. I'm, I'm not the boss here. Um, but they gave me the mic, so go for it. Uh, <laughs> and if I, were, if I were talented, I would have given you like a really cool um, acronym. That's like, uh, like, what it would have been is like, give your love a reboot. R dot E dot B dot O dot. And each one, R is like for respect, and E is for excellence, and B is for <laughs> bromance. I don't know, whatever. I didn't do that because I'm not very creative, and... Uh, <laughs> And, and all I could come up with was three, so mine is out. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the, your acronym for the day. If you want to add this to additional notes, feel free, out. And if you want to add to them, you have to uh, work with that. It's like Scrabble, right? So I'm going to give you the O, the U, and the T. If you want to make that trout, you want to add like a T and R, that's fine. If you want to go to outside, add an S-I-D-E. I'm cool with that. That's great. You add your own. That's fine. But mine's out. This is what I think love needs to be like. Now, in this place, in South Orange County, if it is going to have impact, if we are going to love each other in a, in a radical and powerful way, the first is, oh, it's outwardly directed. You know, friends, they're like, hey, let's just meet at our coffee shop and never talk to anyone else. In fact, I think they all marry each other in that show. Like, they end up all married together. It's crazy. They, they, but outwardly oriented is where we need to be. We need to have our, a, a love that's actually, that goes out and seeks and finds because the, the sad news is, friends, friends is a lie. Everyone in the culture kind of desires that, but what they find is they find that their small groups end up splintering. Their small groups end up fracturing, and they end up isolated and alienated more than they've ever been before. It's the easiest thing in this world right now to go through life utterly friendless. To have friends that, you know, they're there for a while, and then they're gone. It's so easy in this place to disappear and just, you know, create your social media network or whatever. That, that's, that's what is happening to people. What the world does not understand is a love that reaches out. A love that steps outside of its comfort zone and says, I am going to go find you. I am going to be with you. I know you're lonely, and even though you're trying to keep me at arm's length, I'm going to break in and be a part of you and your life. What's desperately needed in the 21st century is not 
Let's be together and never let anyone in. It's let's go out and find those people who are lost and are alienated and isolated and let's drag them into the love of Jesus Christ. That, friends, is the same love that God demonstrated when he gave himself in the incarnation. When Jesus came, Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us and he saved us. That, we need to reboot our love. Use for unconditional. I know, I know. Everyone's like, oh, we know love's unconditional. No, it's not. I, I mean, come on. I'm, I've been around. I know a thing or two. Love's not unconditional. Not in, not in our lives, not in our experience. We don't do that. That's not how we roll. We, for the most part, love's radically conditioned. And this one's actually going to be tied into the T because I think what um, is going on right now in, 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 the, in the culture is that anybody who's not affiliated with the church assumes that if there's one thing about our love, it is highly, highly conditioned. In fact, the people in the culture, what they think about us, and I know because I talk to them sometimes, it's a terrible experience, don't recommend it, but it's good for research purposes. Uh, what they tell me is they're like, you're a bunch of bigots, you know, you're intolerant, you know, like these, these crazy people who are all perfect getting together, judging the rest of us. That's what they think about us, they really do. I think especially um, right now, uh, the major challenge uh, for the church is how we are dealing with the L-G-B-T-Q-I-A plus community. I'm not going to spell every single one of those acronyms, but um, it's referring to sexual and gender minorities. Right now, they think you hate them. They do. They don't realize that you do love them. And our love has to be fashioned in such a way that it comes to them as unconditional, not making demands on them. That doesn't mean that we're not going to hold um, our, our, our principles and our beliefs and our, our cherished um, recognition of the truth. We're not going to abandon that. But we have to find some way to not be afraid of people who are different. Of people and, and let them be with us, to be open to them, not holding them at arm's length, not being weirded out, instead being genuine, as kind to them as you are to sinners who sin with greed and lust and narcissism and selfishness and financial problems and all those other sins. They need that. We need an unconditional love. That said, our love's got to be tough. And this is a, a weird paradox about love. But um, right now in our culture, when people think of love, they think of like you being like, oh, I like you. Oh, I don't care what you do. I like you, no matter what. You're great. And, and I'm just going to be nice to you. I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, totally. Do, what you're, do whatever you want. It's awesome. Sure, sure, sure. Even though I know it's ridiculous and stupid. I'm just going to be kind to you because our culture associates love with tolerance and niceness. Right? And if you're not tolerant, you're not nice, you're not being loving. Any of you who've raised children know that's nonsense. I used to think this, but then, man, I had a couple of kids, and boy, they're awful. I mean, and I, I gotta like, I, I think they're getting better, I hope. Um, but really, it, it, there, there's a, a sense in which I have to be real with them and tough with them about what's true and what's right. I can't just let everything go because, I, you know, I don't want to make them mad. I don't want to risk that they're going to not like me. Oh! I, I, 
No, absolutely not. If I'm truly loving to them, I am going to risk them not liking me. I am going to risk them being offended by me. I am going to risk that they walk away with anger because I'm willing to tell them the truth. I'm willing to say what's right for their futures and who they are. In fact, if you want to think about how you can hold unconditional love and tough love intention, really think about uh, raising kids or the way you were raised if you were raised in loving home. I know not everyone here was. But you can imagine it. You can imagine what that's like to be in a place where you were radically loved, unconditionally loved, and yet held to a serious standard and, and expected to live in certain ways. We, as a community, the world is desperate, desperate for that kind of balance, a place that is open and welcoming, and yet also jealous for the holiness of God. And we live in this tension between the two, where we find ways to to gather all and sundry in, and then we find ways to challenge all and sundry to become more like Christ. You could add uh, more things if you think about our culture and you think about the way love has to change. But my concern, my fear, is that we're not loving that way. My, current, my concern, my fear, is that our love is in desperate need of a reboot so that we can capture the same spirit of the self-giving God who gives himself to the world to cleanse us from sin, to bring us to righteousness. The same self-giving God who pours his spirit into the church so that we, as the church, can be Christ to the world. That same God, that same self-giving, sacrificial love that it can be coming from us now in this place. I think we need a reboot. So let's do it. Let's make our love outwardly directed. Let's intentionally find ways to let people know it's unconditional. Let's then be strong and principled in our love so that it's tough when it needs to be. Let's bring our rebooted love out. O-U-T, out, no? All right, whatever. You guys add in your additional notes and make a better, better acrostic. Improve on my work. Brothers and sisters, I know that you are loving people. I've experienced your love. And even though I come, sometimes come across as a jerk, I think that I'm trying to be a loving person too. But you know what? I might be going about it wrong. I might need a reboot. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, um, I pray that we uh, as people will have a love that's fresh, that's suited um, to this time and context. It won't just be a repeat, a remake of what's gone before, but instead will be rebooted to challenge and encourage and invite an increasingly post-Christian culture. God, send your spirit and creativity and power to stir us up for new ways to be outwardly oriented, ways to be unconditional, ways to be tough as needed. Let us be a light of your love in a dark place. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.